guys? Hey, listen, um, we're going to start the book of Nehemiah today, so I'm going to give you a second to go ahead and try to find it in the Old Testament, all right? <laughs> it's not a big one. Um, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, all right there. Uh, I'll tell you as you're finding it, in the Hebrew canon of Scripture, uh, in the Septuagint and other books, uh, primarily the early Hebrew history, uh, Nehemiah was called Second Ezra. And it's not because the book was written by Ezra. Ezra was written by Ezra. Ezra wrote down the words of Nehemiah. And it's Nehemiah's words. And we'll, we'll see that even in the first verse. But all throughout, it's Nehemiah's firsthand account. But it appears that Nehemiah kept journals or scrolls. And uh, Ezra copied those. Um, and it became canon of Bible. And it's absolutely imperative that... Uh, we understand and study God's word. 69 books in the Bible, uh, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. And uh, if you've never challenged yourself to try to read through the Bible, I'll tell you where it's hard. You get into, uh, Steve, I know you've been doing this, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you start slowing down. Numbers, oh, it's crawling to a turtle's pace. Deuteronomy, it's tough, man. But here's a plan that I love. If you, if you want to challenge yourself to read, you could even read the Bible before the year's over. Uh, do Genesis and Matthew, and then do uh, Exodus and Mark, and just kind of alternate and switch between Old Testament and New Testament. Spices things up just a little bit, all right? Um, how I would like to begin this morning is just like Nehemiah will begin in chapter 1. And in fact, um, Brother Ben, do you have Nehemiah 1-1? Would you read, would you just read that out? Just read it out. I know your voice isn't that loud. Yep. Man, you don't need a microphone. Okay, Miss June, read that. Okay. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hecatliah. And it came to pass in the month Cheslev, in the 20th year, as I was in the Shushan Palace. Keep going. Okay. That Hananiah, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant who are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the, its gates are burned with fire. And read Nehemiah's response here when he hears this news. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept, and mourned certain days, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven, and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God, who keeps covenant and mercy for them who love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive, and your eyes be open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments nor statutes nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that you command your servant Moses, saying, If you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the people. But if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the utmost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from there and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name. 
Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by the great by the thy great power and by thy strong hand. Okay, that's good. You know what happened? Mike, do you know what happens in Nehemiah? Wink, wink. We have a Thursday morning Bible study. I'll just say this. Um, and we've been going through the book of Nehemiah for months. And um, God has pressed on my heart for such a long time to preach the book of Nehemiah. And I'll be honest with you, I've been a little scared to preach through it because it's, it's not an easy book. It's so rich. Even though it's 13 chapters, it's rich. And um, sometimes it's a little scary when you're standing before God and God's people and you try to impart the word of God and make it as meaningful as it should be. And so that's why I pray and I prayed over here all through this morning's worship uh, that the, the Holy Spirit would just loose my lips and let me be able to speak to you in a way as the prayer was prayed before offering that you'd hear. Now, I will say this. Nehemiah heard that his homeland now, he's in captivity. I mean, he's born and raised in captivity. The Babylonians had come, and they had taken the Israelites. They had taken the best and brightest of them. Israel is in captivity in the land of Babylon for 70 years before anyone is released to go back and even look at Jerusalem again. And they did it in three stages or three waves. They sent a man named Zerubbabel to go, and then they sent Ezra. And about 15 years later, they sent Nehemiah. And um, it's a remarkable story if you study the Old Testament. And, and in chronological order, I want you to know, and our Bibles aren't in chronological or time order. You know, Genesis obviously is the first account of creation, but Genesis wasn't written down, at least, first. A lot of people believe that Job was the first one written down. But in chronological order, Nehemiah closes down the Old Testament. And it is after Nehemiah's words are finalized, after the walls are rebuilt, that there's a 400-year period of silence. And it's only opened back up when God speaks to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. And John the Baptist is born, and then Jesus, his cousin, is born. And so after Nehemiah, there's this silent period, okay? But what brought it about was the people are returning from exile, They've been slaves. In fact, they've adopted the Babylonian way of life for a lot of people. Zerubbabel brings a remnant back to Israel. And then about 50 years later, Ezra, who is a priest, comes back and God's called Ezra to lead the people in rebuilding the temple. How can God's temple lay in ruins while we prosper in Babylon? And then 15 years after Ezra, and they were contemporaries, Nehemiah comes. And Nehemiah's focus is not on the temple. Nehemiah's focus is on the wall to protect it. Because there were enemies still all around Israel that were taking advantage of them. And so we see very much that God brings his people back. He restores worship with the temple. And then he brings protection and refuge for his people. And when Nehemiah hears that these walls are still laying in ruins, huge blocks just scattered. Animals and people and bandits and people coming into the city and doing whatever they want to. Nehemiah is crushed in spirit. And how does he respond to that crushing in spirit? The very first thing he does is he goes to God in prayer. I'll tell you this, unless prayer is a spiritual habit on a daily basis for us, it's very unlikely that God will be the first place we turn when turmoil strikes our lives. It should already be present in our lives so that when something goes wrong, and it always does, it always will, 
that we immediately go before God in prayer. We don't try to. I do this and you do it too. We don't try to fix it with our own hands. We don't try to make it right. We don't go and tell 18 people our problems. We just go straight to God and we say, hey, God, here I am. It says that Nehemiah fasted and prayed. You can't see this in here, but there was a four-month span of Nehemiah doing this on a daily basis. He didn't fast every day. There were moments when, obviously, you can't continue that physically. But four months of prayer preceded the rebuilding of the wall. Now, the wall was burnt. It was crushed. It was crumbled. These are huge blocks. It's a massive monumental undertaking to be able to rebuild the entire walls of the city of Jerusalem. If you could get an idea of how big the city was, and I'll have to show you a picture of that next week, um, it's huge. And one of the things that we learned through studying this is each section of the wall was appointed to a family, and basically they would repair that portion of the wall in front of their homes. And doesn't that make sense? Wouldn't you be most interested in building your section of the wall in front of your home to keep you and your family safe? And then as they joined bricks, there's this the symbolism of uniting with their neighbor and the bricks are being laid and the walls being built up, then there's protection for both of us. And so there's this command where ministry starts to take care of your own family first. And then it is to take care of your brother and sister, your neighbor. And so we know in here, guys, that we can't go out and do any repair in this world unless we're first right with Jesus. There is a spiritual need in our hearts for repentance and returning to God and being right with God because we know we can't go out and give them what we ourselves don't have. And so we would take care of our section first. We would take care of ourselves first. Not that we're selfish, but that God commands us to be obedient to him in a personal relationship. And then we go out and spread the good news. You can take this entire series. And what I want to do today is just talk about the introduction of it all and, uh, and how the history of Nehemiah happens. And I've already shared a lot of that. But you could take this series that we're going to be in on Sunday mornings for the next several weeks, and you can apply it to the church, and it applies to this church. You can apply it to your life, and it applies to this life. You could apply it to this country. I believe that it even could make application to this country. But somewhere along the way, we're in ruins. Maybe we've backslidden. Maybe our lives have taken uh, our eyes and our focus off of Jesus. Maybe we're in a bad spot. Maybe our health has failed. Maybe our, our family is crushed. Maybe there's brokenness or divorce or, or there's a splitting of the church or there's anything that could happen. And what God desires to do is not to leave it in ruins, but to revitalize it and rebuild it. And I believe that that's what God has in store for this church and for you and for your family. You know, sometimes progress can be disguised as destruction. We, uh, we haven't watched it recently, but uh, Jennifer and I, well, I guess it was before we had kids, we used to watch the show Fixer Upper. We don't watch TV anymore because we've got our own entertainment there, all right? But I like Chip and Joanna Gaines. We've been down to Waco and seen the silos and all that. But uh, Chip always loved Demo Day. And if you've ever watched that, man, he gets excited about it. And the thing is, is that they'll go into a house and they'll kind of step back from it and they'll kind of envision where they're going to go with it. To the casual passerby on Demo Day, people driving by think, man, they're just tearing that house down. They're going to destroy it. But the reality of it is, is that the builder understands this is what we have to take out in order to get it where we want it to be. 
God is the builder of our lives. Scripture tells us that he's the author and perfecter of our faith. And sometimes there are rotten beams in our lives. Sometimes there are sharp edges that need to be chiseled off. Sometimes there are walls that are literally caving in around us. And it may be because of some outside circumstance, but we are in disrepair. And we need spiritual health. We need spiritual revitalization. We need salvation. We need revival. And on those shows, inevitably, uh, they would take down a beam or they would take down walls. And, and every house that they built had an open floor plan. So, like, this is the house that they're in. And your bedroom's over there. And you can see you sleeping. And the kitchen's over there. And, and it's kind of funny. But the purpose was seen beforehand. And the destruction of what was inside had a purpose with its intent to make something glorious and beautiful afterwards. I believe that's the book of Nehemiah. And I believe that's what happens with us. God is our builder and our rebuilder. He not only knows the intended purpose, but what the final outcome will be. And guess what? Sometimes that is very, very painful to endure. Change must happen in order for growth to occur. And listen, change has a bad word in church life, right? We don't like the word change, but change is going to happen whether we like it or not. Uh, the world's changing all around us. It doesn't mean that we adapt to the styles of the world, but we cannot remain using um, a horse and buggy when our neighbor has an F-250 if we're going to farm the land. Uh, we might need not a new truck, but a truck. We need to get with the times just a little bit. doesn't mean we change the word of God because it is our foundation firmly upon which we stand and which everything else comes. But change must happen for growth to occur. And I'll tell you the story about this. My baby boy, Declan, turns two, year old, two years old today, right? And I'm so happy for that. It doesn't seem like two years ago. Here he is, okay? I want to show you these pictures. Jennifer's been gone this week to Memphis with her mom who had surgery, and her mom's doing better. Last night I fixed dinner, hamburger helper, all right? It's cheap. <laughs> cheap and easy. It's not beyond my ability because it's in a box, right? He kept throwing his fork down, and I said, stop. Sperry, pick his fork up. Give it to him. Throw it down again. Did it three or four times, and I took his fork away. And this is, this is the look he made. He wouldn't make eye contact with me. But I tell you this, I love it. Now, here's the deal. We look at our baby, and he's two today, and I think, man, I've even said this. I wish I could keep you this size forever. You're so sweet. You're so cute. You're so ornery. And I can also throw you across the room if I need to. Man, how devastating would that be for that baby to stay that little the rest of his life for no change to occur? I mean, it would lead to ultimate death, but can you imagine his family grows old and his friends grow up and he's miserable the whole time? And so change are, changes are inevitable to occur. He's going to get that real awkward teenage stage where, uh, you know, you have uh, the bird haircut. And uh, in my case, back in the 90s, it was Steve Kerr's hair. I had the sweet Chicago Bulls player's hair. Uh, you got braces, you got pimples, you're real dangly and really awkward around girls. And uh, especially as a guy, and girls are really awkward around boys. And uh, you go through this change and these hormonal changes. And one day your voice goes from talking like this to talking like this. <laughs> and weird stuff's happening, you know. And we have to change to grow. It's a part of life. But here's what I'd ask you. Uh, we've got people in here that are in junior high, high school, college, people that are in grad school, people that are middle-aged, and people that are older. And I'm just going to take a little poll right now and ask you. Uh, you can be honest, okay? Patrick, is life easy right now in college? 
No, I didn't think so. Okay, it's tough. Aaron Powell, you're, you're in your 30s. Is life easy right now? No way. I know it. Miss Teresa, you're a little older than Aaron. Is life easy right now? No. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to offend anybody by calling the next age up. Uh, <laughs> so my go-to is always Brother Ben. <laughs> Brother Ben, is life easy right now? What makes getting old difficult? That's an open-ended question. What makes getting old difficult? Uh, it's not for sissies, he said, right? Man, a whole lot of things ran through my head just then. I, my point being this. It does not matter what stage of life you're in. We are all having a difficult time at some point or another. We all struggle. And listen, we do change. Our bodies change. Our minds change. Our family dynamics change. People get sick. People die. Kids move off. Kids become seniors in high school. And you need to put a a rock on their head. It's not easy, right? And that's kind of the purpose of this book and the reason why I'm telling you this. And I'm just shooting really from the hip today telling you this stuff. Um, it is painful to grow up. It is painful to go back from a place that you're comfortable in like Babylon, which by the way, at this point in time, Nehemiah is actually in Persia. And I know that this may be boring to some and interesting to others, but this is what happened. The Babylonian empire was a tool in God's hand, even though they were evil people, they were pagans. But he kept telling his children, Israel, he said, stop worshiping false gods. Stop marrying pagans. Be pure. Come back to me. Come worship me. And he gave them all of these requests. And Miss June read it a while ago. But because the people refused to listen to God, they refused to seek God, and they refused to worship God, eventually God said, enough. If you're not going to fix the problem, I will. And God always does that for us. If you're going to continue to run away from God, you can be sure that God is finally going to put his hand up and you're going to run into it. God is over our lives. He does not desire for his children to fall into sin, to live like the world, or to go go the way of hell in a real, real word way. God said enough. And so he let the Babylonians, God allowed this because he's a sovereign God, God allowed the Babylonians to come into Israel, and they ransacked and pillaged Israel. They literally took the best and the brightest that Israel had to offer. And you want to think, what period is this falling in? Think Daniel, because Daniel was carried away. The, the, the names that were given to them were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were carried away. You think about this period of captivity that is going on, and we look at it and we say, God, how could you do that to your people? And God said, you did it to yourselves. I allowed it to happen for a purpose because after the 70 years of captivity, we don't read about the idolatry and the paganism in Israel anymore. Now, they would come to not accept Jesus as Savior, and their eyes are still blinded with scales over them to this day. But there was a fix. There was a cure in that captivity. As they were slaves, they realized how good they had had it with God's blessing. And many, not all, many wanted to return to that blessing of God. And so they were allowed to in these three waves as they returned to Jerusalem. Um, The people had been so disobedient that God had to do something to wake them up. Have you been disobedient to the Lord even recently, even today? 
Man, I'm speaking to somebody in here, maybe all of us in here, but I know I'm speaking to myself. That's where the message has to emanate. If God hasn't struck me, then I know that I can't preach a word that he's giving to me to tell you. The judgment looked a lot like God might be destroying his people, but he wasn't. It looked like that house to the passerby that they might just be destroying and knocking down, but they were literally gutting it. And God was gutting his people to get them back to a place of glory. He was bringing them back, but it hurt in the process. You know, um, last night I was in the hospital in northwest in Bentonville. Gabby Trobaugh, who uh, we baptized just a few weeks ago, little Gabby. Um, Gabby was riding her bicycle. Uh, and her family is, um, actually was in South Carolina, in Georgia. There was a boy we prayed for right here who went to boot camp named Elijah. If you remember that a couple of months ago, well, Elijah graduated, excelled at it. Uh, Luke, his daddy said, he's not a boy anymore. He's a man. And so they went to celebrate his graduation. Gabby stayed here with her grandma and Gabby was riding her bike and went down a hill, basically a ravine and she fell and she has a black eye. I'm sorry for the popping. She has a black eye. It's swollen. She scraped and scratched up, broke her wrist, and lacerated her spleen. And so this little 13-year-old uh, was moved from northwest in Bentonville to Children's in Springdale last night. We have good news that the laceration on the spleen should heal itself. That was the update this morning. But we should pray for her and pray for her family that is probably in a big hurry to get from South Carolina and Georgia back here to see her because uh, you can imagine. But here's the deal. The girl's wrist was broken. In fact, I won't show you the picture, man. It, it made me kind of sick to my stomach. It was broken bad. And I had not been allowed into the room because they were resetting her wrist. And if you can imagine the pain in a broken wrist, a compound fracture in your wrist, and probably a lot of us can. And then they had given her pain medicine, but they said, her uncle said, he had to step out because she was screaming so much when they set the bone back into place pain like you 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 can only imagine but then after they had gotten her arm wrapped up and put back in a cast they showed us the picture of the x-ray and her wrist is straight again and now all it has to do is heal so you know what happens when something's broken it has to be set back so that it can heal well God's allowing this in a lot of ways with the Babylonians taking over Israel the Babylonian empire actually fell to the Persians and so we hear of a king named Xerxes, X-E-R-X-E-S. And uh, you might be familiar with him if you've ever watched, and I'm not telling you to go watch this movie, but the movie 300, all right? Xerxes we have in common with our beauty queen Esther. And Artaxerxes is the king of Persia right now in this book. He is the son of Xerxes. And get this. Why would a pagan Persian king have any interest in letting a man like Nehemiah go back to Israel to repair the walls? What's in it for him? It is very, very likely that Artaxerxes, the son, was the stepson of Esther. Do you remember what Esther did for her people? The plight that she was put through and how she saved God's people, how God used her to save his people. Well, I can imagine being contemporaries and living in the same palace that it was often spoken of between Esther and Nehemiah and the king himself about what the Jews could do and who the Jews were. And so there came a point in time when we read that the cupbearer to the king, literally the wine taster, he, he would put himself, his life on the line for the king who was also a trusted confidant and friend, who was in high places in the palace under King Artaxerxes, that when 
Nehemiah prayed, he asked God to go before him. He asked God to soften the king's heart. He asked God to allow the trip to happen. And then Nehemiah went to the king and he asked the king. Well, the God, our God had already gone before him. The spirit had already been at work. And Nehemiah not only sent him to do this, he sent a band of people and the money and the money for equipment to go with them so that the walls could be rebuilt. You think about it. Pagans rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. And that's just how God works. Can you think, and if you look back in the Old Testament, you think about some of the people that God used that he took from a place of nothingness to a place of prominence and power. Think about Moses, little baby in a, in a reed basket, picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in Pharaoh's house, brought up, and he's a powerful man in Egypt. You think about Joseph, a slave that God rose to the position of prominence and he was second in power only to Pharaoh. You think about Daniel. You think about Esther. You think about Nehemiah in this instance. He was a layman. He didn't have any special privilege, but God had risen him up to a place of power. It's amazing what happens when we surrender ourselves to God, even when the situation seems hopeless and helpless, how he can raise us to a position of prominence, even in the presence of our enemies, so he can accomplish his purposes. Guys, God's purposes are not beyond any one of us. We are designed and placed where we are because God has seen fit to put us there. If you're a banker or a teacher or a police officer or a musician or a preacher or a mechanic or a plumber or anything it is that you do, you have to understand that that is not only your career, that is also your ministry. Josh King, I don't think Josh is here this morning. Josh is a plumber. And uh, we have heard story after story about how he gets to go into people's houses and even though he gets to see probably the worst part of people because he's around their toilets, um, he is able to talk to them about Jesus. And I love that. Uh, Terry, you're the same way, man. Terry has, has done that as well in that same profession. Um, maybe as a banker, you get to just smile and shine and be a witness for Jesus. Maybe you get to do that in a classroom where you can't bring out your Bible, but in the same instance, you can live as a witness for Jesus. And we can do that all over the place. And the reason I tell you that is to remember this. That the work of ministry is not for the pastor alone, all right? I can do a little bit. I can feed the flock. I can help you. I can pray. And we do all of those things. But everything can't be done, and I'm not saying that it is, but everything can't be done by a pastor. It's not the pastor's job to always be the only one who witnesses or goes out and visits or prays or does the work of ministry. That's all of our jobs. Point in case being this. Ezra was a priest. Ezra, the book of Ezra. Ezra was a priest, and he did what God called him to do in rebuilding the temple. His, his focus and aim uh, was to bring back and revitalize the spiritual life of the Israelites. But Nehemiah was just a cupbearer. He was a layman, a businessman, uh, an economic mind, if you will. And God used him in equally the same way to come back and restore the physical aspects of the kingdom. And so I say this, every member in ministry matters. And that means you, that means you who just joined the church, that means you who are young in your faith, that means you who are 60 or 70 or 80 years old, that means me, that means our staff, that means our deacons, that means our musicians, that means everyone. Every one of us have a unique opportunity to put down the thumbprint of God on somebody's life. 
that the rest of us might never have. You are introduced to people that I will never meet, and I am introduced to people you will never meet. And when we do this work of God together and carry the gospel, we reach a magnificent amount of people's lives. But only if we do it together. One can do a little, a multitude can do a great deal. And we have God's promise and his spirit standing within us and behind us. The beautiful thing about this book, and I know I'm giving you an introduction, and I'm really just speaking to you today, but the point of rebuilding the walls, the painful work of rebuilding the walls for Nehemiah, was not the destruction or further harm to Israel, but the glorious renovation of Israel and of God's kingdom. Sometimes building first necessitates breaking. Sometimes what is so unhealthy, unstable, or corroded that it has to be removed for the sake of what will be And so, like Nehemiah, we grudgingly but lovingly swing our spiritual sledgehammers. What is the work in your life that needs to be ripped out and pulled apart because it's not of God? What is your will that needs to be pulled down and humbled so that God can be lifted up? Was it not John the Baptist who said, not my will be done, but thine, Lord? I am the lesser and you are the greater. And what happened to his life? Listen, guys, there are things in us that need to be pulled down. We need to be gutted in some ways, and we need to get real with repentance so that the Lord will break our hearts and revive us spiritually. When God starts reviving a church or a nation, and we haven't had a great awakening in a long time, a a nationwide or worldwide spiritual renewal in a long time, but do you know how it starts? It starts with Nehemiah 1, where we are crushed over the devastating loss and the death of people and that people are dying and going to hell and that there are so many lost people around us and that there's so much brokenness and that God's temple isn't protected and God's house isn't, isn't made beautiful. And we are so broken by that that we stop and we fast and we pray. The rest of life can be put on hold because what is the priority becomes the greatest priority and we pray about it. And then God takes one. All it takes is an ember, right? You hear about these great wildfires, you hear about the fire in the Amazon forest. I don't know how that began. Maybe they, they've said that, but I know this. A single cigarette that's carelessly flicked out the window can start an entire forest ablaze. A single match that's lit and tossed on to dry wood can start the fire. That's where we begin with this. Nehemiah was that match, and God threw him out there. The people rallied around him. At one point, The enemies were so bad against Nehemiah and the Israelites that they literally had a trowel in one hand, rebuilding the wall, and a sword in the other to fight off their enemies. Maybe that's what we're going to have to do. Maybe you have to take your implement of building, and maybe that's teaching, maybe that's serving, maybe that's washing feet, maybe that's something else within the church. Maybe you're a good cook. Maybe you can drive a van. Maybe you can repair a van. Maybe you can do something that nobody else can. But whatever it is, that's your trowel. Put it to work. And in the other hand, we live in a world where the enemy is real. The spiritual enemy is real. And so we have to be diligent and aware. We have to keep our heads on a swivel. While we're working, watch out for the attacks of the enemy. And be ready to fight him off. I promise you, you won't be ready to fight him off if you're not in this word. And if you're not in prayer. So here we are today. We're the people in the book of Nehemiah. We are being returned to our first love, to our God. I don't care where we've been. Today marks a day where we are being returned to our first love and to God. And he sees that, man, much of our lives are in disrepair. Some of us are built up higher than others, and some of us are laid low right now. It doesn't affect God's power or ability. He wants to restore every one of us to a place of glory and holiness. 
If we're not in God's will, he will reform us to his will and his standard. He wants what is best for us, even if it seems painful to us. Our part is like the builders under Nehemiah, to get our hands dirty and our brows sweaty, and to do the hard work of tearing apart what is rotten, to replace it with the sturdier beams of grace and glory. What's your role in helping to rebuild this church? What is your role role in helping to revitalize this church? What is your role in reaching lost people? What is your role in serving somewhere? Because everybody has a role. And you may say, well, I'm too disabled. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too inexperienced. And you can come up with a million excuses. But God's going to get to the heart of the matter and say, what can you do? What will you do? And then when you get serious about it and you start praying, asking God, he's going to give you the power and the spirit to do it. He's going to put a force greater than King Artaxerxes behind you so that you can go out and do the work. But the problem is it's still work. I heard the story Brother Ben told one time to me about a man that he knew that was a millionaire, but he's just an old farmer, and he wore overalls all the time. And he went, and he was going to go buy a new Cadillac, and he walked into the dealership, and he was looking at one, is in the showroom, and no salesperson went over to him because he's just an old farmer. He doesn't look the part. You kind of know how the rest of it goes. The man could have dropped down out of his pocket cash to pay for that Cadillac, but nobody ever came up to serve him, to help him, to inquire of him, and so he walked out the door. I wonder how many of us look and we say, that person's too poor. That person's too far gone. That person's too elite. That person is so-and-so, and so we don't ever go with them to the gospel or try to reach them. But if we had only inquired, we don't know what the Holy Spirit might have been doing in their heart, and the deal would have been done, so to speak. Guys, there is not a one of us incapable of serving Jesus, and we all have a calling placed on our lives. It may be to rebuild something. It may be to heal someone. It may be to help somebody. It may be to give. It may be to serve, but we all have that gift. And that is what the book of Nehemiah is going to teach us. The title of this series is Nehemiah, God Rebuild Us. Let God begin a work in us today that he is rebuilding us. Would you pray with me? Dakota is going to go back for um, baptism here in just one second. And uh, our musicians are coming forward. And here's what I'd say to you guys. Get real about prayer. Maybe yours is haphazard prayer. Maybe you pray only when you need something. Maybe you pray only in times of emergency, guys. Get real about prayer. Get on your knees. Get on your face before God in prayer. Intercede for somebody. Not just for those with physical maladies, but also those with spiritual lostness that plagues their life. The Great Commission says, go, therefore. Go ye, therefore. There's no promise made in scripture that the lost people will come to us. And therein lies the problem. We get so comfortable in church that we think, man, our building's beautiful, our music is great, our seats are comfortable. People will surely come in here. They won't, not unless they're invited, not unless they're convicted. Who will go out and share the gospel? Who will invite someone to church? Who will serve in the children's ministry? Who will pick up kids from Montanay on the vans? Who will go to the trailer park and knock on doors to tell people about Jesus? Who will set up and break down? Who will cook? Who will clean? Who will lift up somebody's hands in prayers? Who will sing? Who will serve? Who will give? Who will do? Who will go? I believe that there's a message in all of this 
for every soul sitting here. God's work of rebuilding doesn't just happen. Sure, God could do a miraculous work and have reconstructed those walls himself. That's not what Nehemiah asked for. Nehemiah asked God for the strength to go do God's work. Are you asking for a miracle? That's okay. But why not ask God to give you the strength to go out and do it? In that way, you become a witness. Your testimony is more powerful. People see that anyone can do it, even an average Joe like me or you. And God gets all the glory. Let your life be a witness. Let your words be a testimony. Rebuilding needs to happen, maybe in you, maybe in your family, maybe at your school, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe in your church. Will you be the spark? Will you be the match that's lit to help revival happen? I love that Nehemiah was. Let's be like him. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your people. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope you give us in Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins, even the most wretched ones and heinous ones that we've committed. Thank you, Lord, for overlooking our faults and for always loving us unconditionally. Thank you for never giving up on us. Thank you, Father, for your bride. God, we want to do our best to be presented to you spotless and unblemished. We know we're not there yet, but Lord, we pray that you'd help us. We pray for the spiritual growth and the numerical growth of this church as we go out, not to pull people away from other churches to join us, but to reach the lost and to grow them. Lord, begin in our hearts today. We beg this of you in Jesus' precious name.